cloud computing, open source, and mobile computing are trends that are affecting every organization. When a large organization adapts to these trends, it is commonly referred to as a digital transformation. Digital transformation causes many companies to reframe their business as a software company. A candy manufacturer must now think of itself as a software company that makes candy. An insurance company must now think of itself as a software company that issues insurance. Capital One is a bank that was started in 1988. Capital One has always had an emphasis on software, but the company's digital transformation has affected it as much as any other company. The company is migrating to the cloud, building out microservices, rolling out continuous delivery pipelines, and shifting the internal culture to be more adept at using software. Hilary McTighe is a senior director of data engineering at Capital One. She joins the show to discuss her experience implementing a digital transformation within a large company. Subjects that we discuss include culture, management strategy, and the sequencing of different phases of a digital transformation. Full disclosure, Capital One is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Hilary McTighe, you are a Senior Director of Data Engineering at Capital One. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I want to start by talking about a term called digital transformation, which is part buzzword, but part reality. <laughs> it's becoming it's becoming more and more a reality and less and less of a buzzword. So, you know, I, I've been going to conferences for the last three years, and digital transformation was something that was getting pitched three years ago. But today it's really materializing into an actuality. Yeah. How has the digital transformation trend looked from the point of view of a bank? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting. You know, from a tech perspective, here at Capital One, we are attacking you know, the same kinds of problems that a lot of the forward-thinking tech companies are, are attacking. There's the move to the cloud, machine learning, automation, AI, and DevOps. We always are keeping a keen eye towards our performance, reliability, resiliency, and we really focus on innovation. Uh, a lot of the, the new, the transformation move to the cloud is really allowing us to be innovative and creative, and we're really taking advantage of that. You know, and it really, the end game here is it, it lets us deliver quality solutions to our customers a lot quicker. You mentioned a few trends, cloud and open source and, and DevOps. I think there's actually one other trend that doesn't often get mentioned in the mm -hmm. world of digital transformation, which is mobile computing. And yeah. mobile computing is, de like, for a bank, that's certainly changed both the workloads that customers are putting on your systems but it's also changing the way that people can interact internally and you you know mm -hmm. you have to build internal tools that are relevant to this how does mobile fit into the world of digital transformation yeah i mean i think it's important to keep mobile in mind for everything that you do you know we're all attached to our devices and you know whether we are talking about our internal systems here at capital one or mobile apps for our customers, that's a, it's just a really big focus for us. Because as you said, we're, we're always on everywhere. And we need to make sure that that is a forefront of our strategy for everything that we're building. And I think these changes, you know, they've been going on. So I, I first worked as an engineer, I think, like seven years ago, eight years ago, mm -hmm. maybe. And 
even just in that window of time, I have seen the changes to how companies are run. There's both cultural changes and yep. technological changes. Can you describe the cultural changes and the technological changes and how team structure has changed? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. You, you know, you bring that up because it's just technology is moving so quickly and it's it's a lightning pace and it's really exciting. And I think, you know, we as engineers, we, we get really excited about diving into the new tech and creating new things and trying out new tech stacks. But it's important not to lose focus on the fact that you are also changing the way that your business is, is working and how people are interacting with your, your systems. And, you know, it's, it's important not to lose sight of the fact that there are customers or users of your systems who may be have been using the same systems for for perhaps years. And as we modernize and we go through our digital transformation, we are then going to ask people to do things a new way. And even though the new tech has enabled us to move more quickly, be more performant, be more scalable, we're still asking folks to change. And, you know, some folks are going to move across or along the change curve at a different pace than others. And, you know, I, th I think it's just really important to keep that in mind as you go through the journey. I think, you know, we focus a lot on, on the technology, but there's a whole other component of that. And that is leading people through that change curve and ensuring that they're comfortable and plan for that really from, from the beginning of your, of your journey. You know, one of the things that we've done at, at Capital One is we've stood up a, our tech college. And tech college is as an internal college for you know, not only our engineers to go and, and get access to classes, both, you know, online training or real-time classes, but also our business partners can go out there and learn how to use these new tools that we're creating and take advantage of the new, the new paradigms that we're implementing here. So it's really very exciting. A lot of these enterprises that are going through a, quote, digital transformation, they are faced with this barrage of like to-do lists, basically, where it's like, okay, continuous delivery, which means, you know, in continuous integration, which means also needing to move to microservices and break up the mm -hmm. monolith, which means also introducing DevOps and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It can feel like the scope of changes that you need to make to your technology is so immense that you, you don't even know where to start. And there are some opinionated roadmaps about how a digital transformation should proceed. Like oftentimes I see continuous integration as kind of the first place to go. Do you have any strong opinions about what is the first thing to do for an organization that is initiating a, quote, digital transformation? Yeah, I, I think you need to inspire a cultural change as well as a technical change. It really comes back to being all in on your transformation. And you need to focus holistically on the enterprise and and how you are going to get the entire business to go through this transform together as one cohesive unit. We, I know our senior executives have some best practices that, that they have uh, encouraged us to follow early on in our journey. Things like you know, infuse tech into your mission itself. Start with the end in mind and uh, take on the, the the difficult things first. And, you know, keep it simple as you move through the journey itself. Hmm. Let's get into particular technologies. 
cloud is a broad trend and you know i feel weird asking a very broad question but i'm just using it as a, as a beachhead to getting into more specific questions yep. how do you use the cloud <laughs> Yeah, so in, in 2015, Capital One announced a partnership with, with AWS. And, you know, how do we use the cloud where anything new that we build, we are building on the cloud. We are enabling cloud services for all of our new tech that we're building. And we're even taking our, you know, so-called legacy applications and re-engineering them for the cloud. You know, we use a lot of the, the core AWS services, the, the storage, the compute services and other tools like Lambda and RDS. And when you think about your career in technology, does the modern cloud and your usage of it within Capital One, does it kind of feel like using a framework did back in the day like you know or or maybe still today like spring framework for example you know yeah. you you've spring framework you've got kind of a slightly opinionated but but still very open way in which you can choose to do things now spring framework is is not exactly a, a monolithic you know framework but it sort of came up in the times of you know you're running this on your own infrastructure mm-hmm. and we can give you things like cloud foundry to help you manage your own infrastructure but now that we've got the cloud it seems like the cloud is kind of becoming a framework for places that that really just need to build good infrastructure and they don't really want to roll their own things mm-hmm. when they can avoid it it's mm-hmm. it's almost like a framework. Do you think that analogy holds? Yeah, I do. It's amazing how that the technology has just gone through an incredible transformation, at least throughout my career. So without dating myself, you know, it's. Uh, I remember when the internet became a really big thing. You know, now you know. I think about the days when we had to wait months to get infrastructure in before we could stand up a new system and all of the planning and the frustration and then the the weight that went into that and, and you know that's all gone now with the cloud and you know as far as a framework yeah I, I think that you can follow certain prescriptive architectures and methodologies for implementing things and I think it's important still to be well managed though you don't want a free-for-all out there so I think in that sense, having a framework and some guidelines and some well-thought-out architecture patterns are really important to have. So I've never been in the position where I'm running an organization that's big enough where I start to look... I mean, organization or or infrastructure that's big enough to look through the... So I know on AWS, you've got not just the AWS services, but you have this huge marketplace. You have this huge catalog of... It's almost like the Amazon like catalog for buying yeah. clothes or dog food or whatever. You've got like monitoring and logging and continuous integration. It's like <laughs> over here, it's like an AWS service. Over here, it's Datadog. Over here, it's yeah. CircleCI. Over here, it's some other thing. How do you choose like which providers how do you make an assessment between these different tools yeah you know it's a good question so as we implement different solutions in the cloud and we really look towards probably the more mature services that have proven themselves to be ready for an enterprise our size you know our needs as a as a large corporation are often going to be different than you know smaller companies we really need the the scalability the reliability that you know more mature tools in the in the cloud are going to offer and you know interestingly you know if there are tools out there that 
perhaps aren't quite 100% meeting our needs, we will work with folks to to customize certain tools. We'll partner with our with our vendors to get the features that we need as an as an enterprise built into these tools. You know, and obviously there, there's open source out there, and we can contribute to that and and, and contribute back to open source products and build in the features that that we need as well. So, you know, I love that there's a lot of ways that we can work around the tools that are available there and make them what we need. Mm. Under what circumstances do you just say, you know, as many as many tools as there are, as great as the tools are, we actually need to build something in-house rather than wiring together cloud tools. How do you choose when to build versus when to buy? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I, for us, I'd say it's a mix. You know, I would say that we tend to default to build, actually. I mean, we are an engineering technology company and, and we like to build. You know, even if we start with, you know, the foundation of something, you know, because our needs are so unique, you know, we often will, we build in-house. However, we're not going to move forward with a build if there's a mature tool out there that already meets our needs and does what we need to do. And then the cost of building, you know, is negated at that point. So I don't think it's it's really black and white. I think you really have to take each individual scenario and look at the technology, look at your use case, look out into the future for what you're going to need and, and make the decision. Can you take me through perhaps a build versus buy decision or just, just an engineering decision where you had to end up building something and take me through the process of building and shipping that particular feature or backend service? Yeah, I can give you some examples of actually where we have worked with vendors. So for example, on our warehousing solutions, we partnered with vendors to build or add on to a product that they were offering. We partnered closely with that vendor and gave them many features and requirements that the product as it was didn't actually meet our needs. And, you know, we said, hey, we need ABC. Mm -hmm. And that vendor actually built that product out for us. And now it's one of their, you know, their prime offerings. And so... Huh. Yeah, it's 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 really neat because we're we're able to we're actually influence what the industry is doing, what the industry is building because of what Capital One needs. And again, you know, we really just keep a focus on our focus on how can we how can we deploy our products and our features to meet our customers' needs? And we're just always laser focused on that. And then that you know we give that back to our vendors, and and you know it's, it's fun to see that evolve. This is one of the coolest trends that was not really present when I started doing this show, but it seems mm-hmm. like the relationship between companies and yeah. vendors and then the, quote, service integrators, the kind of like, you know, spin up a consultant army, it is getting better and better. Like it, it like the perfect example is the Google Anthos announcement mm-hmm. recently, and I think Anthos was kind of a, a maturing of a previous product that they had, kind of this service integrator platform where it's like, here's a place where service integrators and large organizations can mingle and you know form relationships with each other because that's what we need. Because yeah. this whole digital transformation thing is such such an immense trend, which is why it's like I'm all right. I'm willing to use that that term now because it really it really <laughs> is like an industry wide transformative trend, and there's so much opportunity and yet so few engineers. 
Yeah, it's funny you bring it up. I really hadn't thought of it that way, but you're right. The the relationships and the partnerships, I think is a better word, that we have with our vendors today look very different than, you know, what they did 15, 20 years ago. I, you know, back in, in the day, it was, here's what we're offering, take it or leave it, and we're going to charge you an arm and a leg. And, you know, now we really partner together to, to, to build things and build great products. And it definitely is a trend towards the better. And I think it lets all of us be more innovative. You alluded to a warehousing solution, data warehousing. Mm-hmm. You're a senior director of data engineering. Mm-hmm. One of the trends in data engineering is this increasing subtlety between what has historically been referred to as OLTP versus OLAP workloads. So mm-hmm. OLTP being mm-hmm. these transactional workloads where like maybe I'm editing a specific record in a specific yep. database. It's like yep. one specific transaction for a bank. It might literally be a banking transaction. Like I am mm-hmm. making a single write to the database. I want my three phase commit or whatever, you know, to accept that that write is, you know, fully integrated into the data set versus this OLAP kind of query where like I want all the records that are associated with this kind of transaction I want all the balances of all my you know accounts totaled up so that I can get a mm-hmm. total and make sure that we've got you know a clear balance sheet or whatever but these things are are not so discrete anymore can you describe how you see the OLTP versus OLAP workloads mm-hmm. in the modern data environment yeah, I, I do agree that they are converging a bit. But, you know, I, I think we we really see the OLAP and the analytical loads is, you know, like you said, more of the reporting, the drill down, the drill across, the, the deep history and the analytics. And what are the insights and the knowledge that I can gain from all of this data that I have collected? Which is a different focus than, say, the OLTP, which is going to be your transactional type of a function. So, you know, I still see that is even though the technologies within the warehousing and the database space, they're getting blurry. I do still think there's a fit for purpose use with with the different technologies there. And when you have that fit for purpose use, so ideally, the thing is like, as a user, as an end user, it would be a magical experience if I could like issue, you know, MapReduce scale queries (laughs) from a personal finance application we don't seem to be there yet. I mean, do you do you agree that that would potentially be a desirable, you know, characteristic that we would be able to get from our consumer applications? Yeah, absolutely. I I think we are going to watch the technology evolve and the the blurry lines between these tools are going to keep blurring and I think it's one of the most fascinating things right now to keep your eye on is how these data warehousing and database tools are converging and how they're all bl- blurring the line. But yes, I, I think when you're able to use, you know, click a button and get all your insights, it's going to be great. Now, an application like social media or even a shopping cart, you can have eventual consistency be okay in many circumstances. To me, banking seems like an area where you kind of want to avoid eventual consistency. Are there areas of banking where you think of eventual consistency as being applicable, or is it mostly like, do you want strong consistency out of your data workloads? (laughs) It really depends on the use case. I think, you know, we... There's so much that you can do w- with data and insights you can gain. And, I, you know, I, 
it really depends on what you're trying to do and what you're trying to glean. So, mm. yeah. As you have refurbished the infrastructure over the years of the digital transformation, how has your approach to creating and deploying services within Capital One changed? Yeah, so <laughs> it's changed quite a bit. You know, we've adopted an agile methodology. And so we really encourage innovation. We encourage iteration, quick development cycles. We really focus on our MVP or you know, minimal viable products throughout our, our product creation. You know, we're a very collaborative organization. You know, I love that we have hackathons and we have tough problems to solve. We sponsor hackathons throughout the enterprise that are, are really fun and get everyone involved and, and, and creative. You know, and I think another thing I would say here is that it's okay if to fail. And, you know, our, our transformation journey and our movement to the cloud and our relentless focus on, on the customer it all leads to, uh, some of it will lead to, it's okay for us to fail. And you have to create that culture of people not being afraid of if things don't work out perfectly the first time. We don't have to wait for three-month deployment schedules and, and you know, months for hardware to come in if we need to scale. And you know, we, we have the ability to be so much more creative and innovative right now. And you know that really allows us to be to operate in an environment where we're not really afraid to fail. And, and that that's exciting, exciting time to be in. How do you manage your hackathons? <laughs> How do we manage them? Yeah, we bring in just, we actually ask teams, you know, hey, we've got this problem. You guys want to sign up? We have folks sign up, think about some solutions they want to bring to the table. And then we all get together and we really make it fun. And we have different teams come in and create their solutions and, you know, we'll, we'll do a presentation at the end and usually go forward with a few. We've gotten some good stuff there. Interesting. Do you, mm-hmm. do you, so is it mostly like, you know, problem oriented? Like, like I remember at, uh, when I worked at Amazon, there was one time a, a hackathon around like making the elevators better. I think it was like a, <laughs> a totally theoretical hackathon. I don't think we actually had access to like elevator infrastructure, but I, there was this like kind of meme within the company of these elevators and, you know, you have like rush hour and then the elevators are super busy. And then it's like, it was kind of this ideation hackathon, but there's other, there were other events there where it was just like people can, you know, come up with their own ideas, like totally yeah. from scratch. So do you think it's better to have a problem-oriented hackathon or just totally open? Usually we have a problem that we're going to try to solve in the sense that, you know, I I don't see many free-for-alls, for for example, but usually there is, you know, one specific, and it could be broader problem. And, you know, I think it's it's fun. It, it, it lets us be, again, be very innovative. And I, I think it's it's something that a lot of folks will actually come to Capital One because we we are creative in that way. And we allow folks to get involved and, and, and feel a part of the problem solving part of an organization. You know, if you if you look at a problem, you think, gee, that's interesting. Well, go ahead. Let's let's see what you got. Coming back to the digital transformation cultural question. So one thing I've seen is a lot of 
organizations are are going from a place where a lot of the innovation was proceeding in a top down fashion. Yeah. yeah. Because and 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 this was partly because the tools used to be so much harder to work with, and so you had this top down, you had this waterfall, and we did that for very good reasons. Like tech was really really hard to build. Like it was very very hard to you know like stand up a database, for example, right? right and then like right. so it made sense to like okay, the executive makes a decision that falls down to the CTO, it falls down to the CSO and CIO and so on, and it's just this waterfall and it's. You know, it's it's not, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, back then it wasn't really considered, you know, drudgery. It was just like, this is the way we have to do things. Over time, it has become more and more of a kind of bottoms up thing where like team, teams are getting a little bit mm-hmm. more independent. You know, responsibilities are sort of like more loosely defined. The abstractions are better to work with. How do you encourage a culture of? But, but by the way, you still need top-down selection and mm-hmm. sol- and top-down innovation in many many circumstances. How do you see the tension between the bottoms-up and the top-down innovation in in a typical software enterprise? Yeah, I think that you know that's part of the reason you need to be all in from all levels. And so, if your executives are bought in, it's going to enable everyone to be in as well. And you know, like like you mentioned, the way that the technology field is transforming right now, it allows everyone at every level to be creative and come up with solutions and be innovative. And we have a program called TDP at Capital One. It's the Technical Development Program. And it's a program for recent college hires. They come into Capital One and they do this like a two-year rotation. And they're embedded within engineering teams. And it's one of the most fun and successful you know, programs that we have. It lets these junior engineers who are just starting their career to partner with more senior folks. And they get to learn from them. And even, you know, these are sometimes are, are folks who haven't been in the workplace before. And so they can learn from the more senior folks. And then the senior engineers get a chance to pass on and and mentor and teach the junior engineers. And it's really great to see that, you know, everyone at all levels getting involved in solving the tough problems. And, you know, I especially enjoy working with, you know, the young women who are coming out of college today. I mean, being being a woman in tech, right? I love to have the opportunity to work with the young women who are starting their career and, and to serve as a, as a mentor and a guide for them and talk to them about my tech journey and you know how I got into this crazy technology field. What advice do you have out there for people out there who either are looking for a mentor or who would like to contribute mentorship? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think if you're looking for a mentor... You know, you really you want to look around for somebody who, who you feel like you have you can establish a great relationship with of trust and openness, and you know, come prepared with specific questions or issues that you'd like to tackle, and you know, be real open with that. And if you are a mentor and you're looking for mentees, I mean, within Capital One, we have programs that you know, you can easily get in, get involved and get out there and say, "Hey, I'm looking for somebody to mentor." And you know, in my experience, there's there's almost always people out there looking to partner, mentor, mentee. And I really think it's up to the the two to make that relationship and make mm. it what you want. Mm. 
Yeah, I've seen this approach different ways. Like I've worked at companies where they almost standardize the mentorship relationship, and sometimes it works out really well. Like I've been paired with people who become, you know, they they were mentors at one you know point in in my career, and that mentorship has you know evolved into really a, a relationship of equals, yeah. which is just a magical thing if you can manifest it. So do you do so, like, are there, like, internal tools that you make for that? Or do you, like, have mixers or... But I, because I agree with you that, like, if somebody doesn't want a mentor or they don't even, yeah. they're, they're, you know, they don't have the initiative to go for it, like, you're not going to force them to, you're right. not going to be able to force them to get yeah. to get a mentor. Right. Yeah, so. you don't want to force that. It, it won't work. But I, I don't know that, you know, it's not so formal. I, I think that there's, it's easy to just put feelers out to, to be able to get a mentor, mentees. I think it's a common thing here. And so it's not something that's seen as, oh, I, I'm going to have a hard time finding, you know, finding a mentor. People are pretty, pretty open about it. And it's just, it's just part of a culture in the DNA. When you talk about recruiting and, and particularly on the new grad side. So I remember yeah. when I was an intern or when I was a new grad, I swear, like I, the amount of work that I was able to deliver that was actually useful to the company is so it was so minimal. And like in retrospect, I, I what I wonder is, you know, does a big organization really just see internships and really early employees? Is that kind of like you know an option or just kind of like a bet on like okay, in <laughs> six months or eight months or twelve months or maybe even after your entire internship, you may there's a a percentage mm-hmm. chance you will become a full-time employee and then there's a percentage chance that you will be able to actually contribute something meaningful to the organization is that the framework or am i was i just like a uniquely inept you know in, <laughs> intern or early engineer oh yeah so i won't say you're uniquely inept but <laughs> definitely that is not our experience here you know we we aren't asking people to go grab coffee you know our interns we want them to learn. They are embedded with engineering teams. They are given real assignments to work on. When our when we hire folks out of college or new hires, you know, I would say we actually put them on the more interesting projects that we have. And we have a keen focus on making sure that they are learning and they are challenged and that they are focused on the toughest problems. So for example, machine learning is often something that a lot of new hires want to focus on. And so we make a point to say, hey, what are you interested in doing? Hmm. If it's machine learning, let's hook you up in one of your rotations with the machine learning folks. If you're interested in you know, data engineering, which is how I get to interact with a lot of the TDPs, they've shown an interest in data. So it's certainly not just come in and we're going to put you where there's an empty desk. It's what do you want to work on? And We'll match you up with the best engineering team, and they're absolutely hands-on in the code doing things that make a difference. Coming back to the the question of, of service deployment, service management, I've often heard of larger enterprises that have a platform engineering team where the platform engineering team will standardize certain mechanisms of, of deployment or maybe a quote-unquote service mesh or, you know, like everybody mm-hmm. has to use Kubernetes or everybody has to use containers, or everybody is using Cloud Foundry, something like that. Do you have a platform engineering team? 
We do, actually. We have several. You know, there are several enterprise-wide platforms that we have out there as, as options. So, for example, our warehousing, some of our warehousing platforms, our monitoring platforms, and those are implemented and managed by platform engineering teams. So those teams are accountable for implementing the platform, managing the platform, making sure it's scalable, it's reliable. So they're really the heart of these platforms. And then that allows the other tech teams or the other engineering teams to really focus on what they want to focus on, which is developing software using these platforms. And they don't have to worry about the things that the platform engineering side of the team really loves to handle and loves to dig into. And it really is a, is a win-win for us. And it, it, you know, it lets us deploy our software in a much quicker way because we've got that software engineering teams working on the software and the platform team is handling is handling the platforms and it really works out well for us and you know as a matter of fact we even focus on building you know tools to provide transparency into into our different platforms so a lot of times if you're if you don't have access to a platform you you can't see some of the intricacies of the performance of the platform etc but we build tools around the platforms to enable self-service and again that just lets us move quicker and it lets us be more creative with our solutions do you know what areas the platform engineering teams like prioritize? Like, I, I guess I, I want to know what things are you want to make opinionated and what things you want to be agnostic. Like some people have different tastes in monitoring tools or mm-hmm. continuous delivery mm-hmm. tools. Where do you want to standardize and where do you want to mm-hmm. let engineers kind of have their freedom? Yeah, I think it's a little, it's, a, it's always going to be somewhere in between. Uh, you're not going to want a free for all, but you definitely want to have some governance and guidelines there, you know, and what we found is that offering, you know, uh, solutions for the engineering teams to use is, is a great way to allow our engineering teams to be creative and have a handle hand in the, in the process and choosing the tech. But, you know, you have to make, you have to make sure that your tools that you're putting out there as options are, you know, fit in with your philosophy of being well, well managed. So, What's your approach to monitoring and logging and tracing tools? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'd say that the the digital transformation is, has really enabled us to kind of get creative in this area. So we can collect logs from everywhere now. You know, that that is something that, that we're able to do. We can we can up our game here in this space. So we we collect logs. We have real-time monitoring in place. You know, there's a lot we can do with the logs. We can look at machine learning on those logs. There's just so much more data that is available to us. And it really, it helps us troubleshoot more quickly. It helps us identify problems more quickly. And, you know, of course, all that leads to to a greater experience for our engineers and our, and our customers. And, and that's something that really has been enabled by the, the transformation for us. Have you found that logging data to be useful more as a defensive tool and a way of identifying bugs? Or have you found like high-level business value from the logging? I think it can be both. I think that you know, traditionally it was more of a reactive, like let's go back and look at the logs and see what happened. But now that we're able to more easily collect the logs and monitor, you, we're going to we're going to continually become more proactive with that and actually gain business value. So I think that's a journey we're still on and, you know, we're really pushing towards that. 
the space of monitoring and logging and tracing is often associated with people who are DevOps or, mm-hmm. or on-call. Is that mostly the purview of the DevOps people, or, or do you find that monitoring and logging and tracing is also useful for the developers? Oh, definitely both. You know, I think that DevOps, it's part of its, one of its main tenants is everyone is going to get involved. You know, you build it, you own it. And logging is is not only for the, the operational team, it's also for the developers. And I, I think that what we're seeing is the these teams work even more closely together. And the operation teams are actually using a lot of the knowledge that they're gaining and bringing that back to the dev teams to, e- to create even better products with the insights that they're that they're gaining from all the logs. Do you have particular operations teams or do you have more of a philosophy of people who build it should run it? It's really both. You know, I, I think that there's operation teams who will always be your front line, but they're not, there isn't that traditional, you know, canyon between <laughs> what used to be the operations team and your development team. And that just did that divide between the two is, is really shrinking and it's becoming more of a partnership and more of a, collaboration between the teams to make the products that we roll out the, the, the best that they can be. And I mean, that's a great thing to see. Has the on-call levels of intensity improved since the improvement of cloud tools and the improvement of open like Kubernetes or containerization? Yeah, yeah definitely. Because we're, we're able to deploy much more quickly now. We can isolate workloads. You know, we are able to implement fixes much faster. So yeah, I'd say everyone's life is becoming, you know, a little bit less challenging now that we've gone through our our cloud transformation and, you know, less frustration for our engineers and our and our, our operations teams is, is always a good thing. Since you mentioned workload isolation, you often get or at least in the places I've gone to, there's often the scenario where you have a huge monolithic application that's doing something really important and nobody mm-hmm. understands how it works. <laughs> <laughs> when you're in this kind of situation, do you just kind of like put that thing in a container and say, okay, we're putting it over here. You know, we're going to maybe put acceptance tests on it and like make sure it, you know, is a black box. It does what we want it to do, but we're not going to like touch it otherwise. <laughs> or do you have somebody actually go in and do the surgery necessary, you know, to actually understand what this thing is doing? Yeah, we're going to understand what the thing is doing. We, you know, especially as we as we migrate and we we modernize our applications, we need to know. We are going to, you know, understand what those apps do. And you know, I I, I think that the days of having those monolithic applications of back boxes are <laughs> hopefully in the past. That's my sense too. That's yeah. one of the things that makes me most optimistic. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> maybe it's not so like maybe it's not so bad to work because like when I this is kind of like why I became a podcaster is I was like, <laughs> I don't want to work on these monoliths. They're yeah, too hard. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're going we're going to see a lot less of that. <laughs> I swear it was like two or three jobs in a row where it's like okay. Step one is write, write unit tests for this monolith. And I'm like, okay, that sounds easy enough. And it was not easy, you know? It's like, it is not, yeah. It's like, okay, first st- set up the debugger. Okay, so I've got to step through this monolith. Okay, how do I do that? Like, wait, how does it work with the networking? And like, it's just awful. And it's, but, yep. you know, now it's actually, you know, becoming more creative. You mm-hmm. know, you have more latitude. You have yeah. more autonomy. Absolutely. And it's it's really nice to see 
like you said, when you've been doing this for a while and you, you see the, the lack of frustration that the, that the engineers have because they are free to be more creative and they're not, you know, constrained to some of the, by some of the factors that did constrain us 15, 20 years ago. How important do you think it is for an enterprise that's going through a digital transformation to contribute to open source repositories, either as a charitable gesture or to genuinely understand what's going on? Yeah, I think it's it's important. I think engineers love to do it as well. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, as we, we're investigating open sourcing some of our tools that we've built, we have a really robust open source office that helps us through the process and and guides us through that. And I, I think that if if the time is, is right and it's the right tools, then you definitely you contribute back. Do you think open source will move up the stack? And so what I mean by that is I, I think it's interesting that most of the open source tools these days are kind of back-endy tools like, you know, Kubernetes or mm-hmm. MySQL or, you know, other data data mm-hmm. systems. But I see no reason why. I mean, we have WordPress. We have, uh, you know, there's there's a few other open source kind of front-endy tools. There's really not that much, though. It seems like, you know, the open source world is primed to start developing things that are higher up in the application layer. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I, I don't see why it wouldn't go there. I think it's it's exciting to think about all the different possibilities that are out there. And there's, you know, there's new stuff popping up every day. So yeah, I agree with you. I think it, I think it will. Yeah, definitely. Paint a picture for me for what banking looks like in 10 years. (laughs) Banking looks easier than ever in 10 years. It looks, customers are extremely happy with our products and services. They're easy to use. You know, everything is, geared towards the customer, customer facing. Customers don't dread banking. They love it. That's what I see. Yeah. yeah and I, I mean, I could imagine things like, you know, like I'm near a Starbucks and my bank says like, you know, would you like a free cup of coffee? Like we're, we're going to buy <laughs> you a free cup of coffee because we love you as a customer so much. Like I yeah. think there's so many subtle improvements mm-hmm. to kind of your your experience with a bank that yeah. could materialize. Do you have like a wish list for like futuristic banking subtleties yeah. that you'd like to have? I mean, yeah, I don't know if you've seen our, you know, our Capital One cafes, but Actually, you know, that I, that's that's a great point. I, I did yeah. not, not I have there's a friend who I whenever I used to visit San Francisco, I would go to the Capital One Cafe yeah. and meet with him and I was like, this place is awesome. There's no yeah. coffee shops with any space to work. <laughs> in San Francisco and there's this bank that happens to have a cafe. Yeah, and exactly, and it's a place it, that is absolutely not what you would think of as a traditional bank, but you go there and you can feel relaxed and get, you know, coaching on your on your money and get advice if you need it and grab a cup of coffee. So, it's funny that you mentioned that. <laughs> okay, so there's people out there listening right now that mm-hmm are going through this digital transformation process. Mm-hmm. Capital One seems to have done or is on the path to doing this pretty productively, pretty successfully, I would say, relative to mm-hmm. the average. 
do you have any other tips or things, subtleties that people might not see in digital transformation marketing messages or, you know, vendor solutions guides? You know, what unique piece of advice can I extract from this conversation about how to do a digital transformation? You know, I, th- I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where be all in on your transformation, you know, at all levels from the bottom, from the top. It has to be your transformation must be an integral part of your culture and your tech transformation. We all need to be singing the same, the same tune and, you know, get great talent, get great talent and enable people to be innovative and so that they can, they can be creative. And, you know, that's not only going to attract great talent, but that's going to keep them here too. All right. Now let's say I'm running a lumber company. My lumber company is a you know international conglomerate and we're doing great financially and the future is bright for the lumber market. But I'm like a lumber executive. I don't know anything about like digital <laughs> transformation. And you're an engineer in the organization. You you have been, t- or you maybe you're even like classified as an IT person. And, <laughs> and and you you step into this organization and you're like, oh my gosh, there's so much that could be done if we went through this digital transformation. Let's say you have a brief audience with the CEO. What mm-hmm. compelling arguments do you make, or how do you frame? this digital transformation idea to somebody who like literally yeah. just threw out their beeper and got their first smartphone. <laughs> you, oh uh, yeah, well, <laughs> that's funny. Definitely you will want to tout the benefits of a digital transformation. And by that, I mean the ability to move quicker, to deploy features faster, to make your customers happier. You know, without a digital transformation, you will be stuck in the old world and the old way of doing things, which is often slow and frustrating. So if you want to offer the best services and you want to offer the best products, then you will need to you know, embrace a digital transformation that's going to allow you to move quick and, and implement and, and be creative. To conclude, you have been in technology for a long time. Can you just tell me your your brief career trajectory? How did you get started in technology and how did you wind up where you are today? Oh, so how did I get started in tech? Well, that's a funny story, actually. I had graduated from college with a, a general degree in marketing and management, actually. And I wasn't really excited with a lot of the job opportunities that were out there. And so I decided to go ahead and investigate going to grad school. And one of the professors who I had worked with throughout my last couple years at school had suggested looking into the IT program for grad school. And I thought, hmm, well, I like computers. Um, I had tinkered around with them a bit. And I thought, all right, let me investigate that. So over the summer, I took a few prerequisite classes for the grad school program. And one of them was actually, uh, yeah, I'm dating myself here. One of them was actually a COBOL programming class. And I, I took that class over the summer and I had completed my first assignment. And, um, I was extremely proud of my my first COBOL assignment, and I was living at home with my parents, and I, I brought my assignment home to show them, and uh, it was this big stack of, uh, the COBOL code was this big stack of that, that dot matrix 
printout paper and I brought it home and I, you know, I just was so proud of myself and I, sh- I showed it to my dad and I was like, look what I did, look what I did in class today. And, you know, he picks up this stack of papers and he looks at me and said, well, that, that, that's great. What does it do? And, and I looked at him and I said, oh, it, it says, hello world. And I was so proud of my hello world code um, that I knew that I had found the right career uh, for me. I just, it was a passion of mine. I loved making things work and tinkering with things and, you know, no one else seemed to get it around me, why that was exciting. But to me, I thought it was great. And uh, that's how I ended up in, in tech. And you know, I've been doing it many, many years since then. Hillary, thank you for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Wow.